0: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Matt Barreto, who is the author of Change, They Can't Believe in, the Tea Party, and Reactionary Politics in America. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of The Big Leagues Go to Washington, Congress and Sports Antitrust 1951, in 1989, David George Sertom. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've enjoyed reading the book in the midst of a uh, a baseball season. Before we get to the actual book, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is.
1: Oh yes, I'm a professor of economics here at the University of Northern Iowa. I graduated my Ph.D. and my master's degree from the University of Chicago, writing under Robert William Fogle, Nobel Prize winner in economics, and my dissertation was on the economics of the American Civil War. Since then, I've switched topic to uh, economics of professional team sports leagues and leisure in America during the 20th century, so I have various books on these topics, and I'm now currently working on uh, business ethics throughout the ages.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, what a, what an enviable research agenda to get to write books like this. Um, I think everybody kind of uh, probably kicking themselves. Why didn't I choose to write about this issue? It's, it's just so interesting. It must have been interesting actually doing the, the work for this book. Um, the book itself is really about the three major sports in the U.S. Baseball, basketball, and football. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's hard for those who are sports fans now To really even imagine the very humble beginnings of each one of these sports, I wonder if you could describe a bit of the early history of of baseball, for example. Um, How was the sport organized and operated in its earliest days?
1: Chaos. Basically a free-for-all. They didn't really have a, a very formal structure. In 1871, the National Association, I believe it was a $5 entry fee, People set up their own schedules. Oftentimes, they didn't bother to play through the schedule, and it was complete chaos. The National Football League pretty much mimicked that in the early 1920s. Some of the teams played most of their games at home. Some played mostly on the road. It's not until the 1930s that they all played the same number of games. Franchises came. Franchises left. The National Basketball Association, pretty much a similar story. So there's a a winnowing period once they achieve some success, then of course people say, well, it's successful, we'll, we'll try to be the interloper and set up our own league. And then you have the, a lot of the interesting things going on when they're combating new leagues.
0: So, so out of this chaos comes one of the <laughs> themes of the book, which is the, the, com, the complex ways that we might view professional sports as business activities. And then this then relates to how they're regulated So, why is it so tricky to just conceptualize sports as a commercial activity? Why is this contested?
1: Even the Supreme Court seemed to have been uh, imbued with this idea of baseball as a somewhat uh, mythical entity in the sense that they didn't want to tamper with it in the 1921 decision, Federal League versus. versus the established baseball leagues. And the, the justices, I guess, felt that baseball was not just simply crude commerce or anything as, as crass as that, but it had some sort of uh, part of the fabric, social and cultural fabric, so they were they were hesitant to tamper with it. Um, but really, when you strip it down, the owners are not particularly sentimental, and they may express themselves as that, but when it comes down to it, they're pretty hard-headed business people, and that, that's fine. I, I have no... Uh, no problem with that. It's only when they begin to bend the rules and go up against some of the antitrust growth the rest of businesses and the rest of the citizenry have to play with to, that I find it rather uh,
0: distasteful, I guess. Right. And, and you're alluding to the, one of the, the, the first ways that, that the, the government treats uh, professional sports, with, which is with this antitrust exemption. Um, when does baseball get this special treatment? And and what are the practical implications for the first half of the 20th century for the sport of getting this, this antitrust exemption?
1: The antitrust exemption um, never actually granted by the government, but then on the other hand, when they did take it to court, um, they basically de facto said, okay, well, you've been operating this way, we're not going to tamper with it. So, in a sense, it was... I don't want to say a negative right, but but they didn't take it away from them. And uh, there were later court cases with the other leagues where they were less willing to uh, look the other way. So most of these other leagues never had an explicit anti cut exemption, but the, Cong- uh, the courts were hoping Congress would act. Congress was hoping that the courts would act because it was somewhat of a hot potato <laughs>
0: And, and so we have this this period you know the, and some I, I the owners probably would view it as the golden age of professional sports, and the players and fans might have viewed it somewhat differently. by the 1950s, Congress starts to get involved. What if you could talk a little bit about who the key members of Congress were that saw professional sports as an important federal agenda item? Who was involved in this early debate in the in the 1950 s
1: Well, I'll mention. Uh, three of the more prominent ones, Emmanuel Seller, the uh, long-serving Democratic congressperson from the Brooklyn area, who won 25 consecutive uh, elections for Congress, which uh, would be the envy of most any sports team to have a winning streak that long. Senator Sam Irvin, of course, most people alive today would remember him more from the Watergate which hearings, which came near the end of his career. And finally, Senator Estes Kefauver, uh, Democratic Senator, well, Representative Senator from Tennessee, who briefly, or maybe not even briefly, aspired to the presidency in the 1950s. And they were, Seller uh, and Kefauver were on the subcommittees on monopolies in the House and the Senate, respectively. So they were on, they were investigating various industries. And so Seller uh, was, uh, if I can characterize it, he seemed pretty suspicious of business owners and he didn't seem to like the fact they were making profits. On the other hand, Irvin seemed to be fairly laissez-faire. He was certainly one of the conservative Democrats who I presume in 1980 might have switched over to Ronald Reagan when there was the a uh, mass uh, switchover between the parties. And Kefauver was a fairly liberal uh, Democrat who actually had a fairly decent civil rights uh, record during the 1950s uh, and 1960s. So they were interesting characters.
0: And during this time period... Were they, were they examining single sports or, or the major sports together? How comprehensive was this look that uh, this, this group of members of Congress were taking?
1: The Sellers Committee was the first to investigate. They had a hearing in 1951 on baseball and baseball only. There were several uh, things circulating at the time. There were television rights, there was fears about the collapse of the minor leagues, and of course, you got this integration factor, and then finally the demographic changes, where a lot of fans in the South and the West were clamoring for teams, which is, in fact, one of the reasons or one of the one of the incentives for these uh, legislators to get involved, was that they were hoping to either a get a team, whether through expansion or enticing another team to relocate, or b prevent their team from leaving their their constituents.
0: And so what, what came of this initial round of hearings? What did, what did, for, for so long, Congress had been essentially punting on, on what to do. Uh, what did Congress resolve uh, in the 1950s about some of these key issues? Which, which did they ultimately address, and which ones did they continue to, to uh, uh, not address?
1: The hearings generated lots and lots of pages. Testimony, there were some statistics provided, There was a little bit of analysis, not much, but mainly there were two legislative things early on, well, not early on, in the middle of the hearing, which the book covers roughly 51 to uh, 89, and the two major pieces were the giving the National Football League the right to sell a monopoly contract to CBS for uh, football games and the 1966 or 67 merger between the NFL and the AFL. Those were the two main pieces of legislation. They rarely agreed, both the the House and the Senate, rarely agreed to pass explicit exemptions. On occasion, one would pass it, but the other never got around to it, and they had to wait a while, and then the other would pass it, and the other wouldn't get to it. So the actual amount of legislation was pretty minimal, aside from the two NFL victories. The NFL comes out in pretty good shape on these hearings until you get to the TV blackout, then things begin to get a little, little um, rough for them.
0: Yeah, and, and what about the labor issues? Uh, when, does the, when does Congress, if at all, get involved in the kinds of uh, labor issues that we so, we so associate with this dimension of professional sports, issues of free agency, um, issues of, of contracts and salaries? How is that issue addressed in, in these various hearings and, and by Congress?
1: During the 1951 hearing, they were uh, they were just a few years removed from some of the wealthy Mexican baseball owners who tried to entice major league players to go south of the border. They were hoping to uh, create their own major league, so to speak, and some of the players initially were blacklisted, and there were threats and everything, so uh, that was one of the issues they wanted to look at. They certainly were we critical of the reserve clause because it's very one-sided. The team could release a player with, say, seven or thirty days notice, but the player was bound to the team for life unless the team transferred the right to the player. Many of the members of the committee being lawyers said, well, this is completely one-sided. It's, it's, I think some of them called it an unconscionable contract. On the other hand, they didn't do anything about it. The owners claimed they had to have this reserve clause because it maintained competitive balance, which was always their figly recovering their uh, exploitation of these athletes. Similar to the movie star during the studio, the star system, uh, the players were pretty much bound to one entity or one firm, and their bargaining was uh, reduced, therefore it's probably a pretty safe bet to say that they were being economically exploited, even though they made more than the average person on the street, which uh, probably was to their disadvantage in getting sympathy, because a lot of people thought, well, they're making or five times the average earnings of an American for playing a game, which was typically the way they would characterize it. But that uh, ignores the fact that a Ted Williams or a Jordan and or an Otto Graham were very unique talent. They were the very acme of their profession, so to speak. And if they were in law or medicine, they would be making probably as much, if not more, than these professional athletes.
0: Now, the, this role of the public in, in these hearings and the debates and, and just the larger perception of professional sports, really comes into the conversation in the 1980s when Congress gets involved in the issue of team relocation. Uh, what triggered congressional attention at this point, and, and how did Congress address the protection of local communities?
1: Well, dating from about the 1950s with the Milwaukee Braves getting a, a municipal uh, stadium um the teams, or the, the cities and the, the counties began to have more of an interest in the teams directly because they were often subsidizing the teams via the use of these stadiums on sweetheart deals and everything. And also they claimed there was some sort of economic impact from having the team in there. They, they would use the standard multiplier method by saying, well, if a fan comes in from out of city and uh, goes to the game, and then maybe they stop off their arrest on... And five bucks, and then that restaurant owner will spend the five bucks on another business and so on. So, uh, depending on the enthusiasm of the consultants, they could claim that these sports teams were generating large sums of money, but probably in reality they were not. However, it was the perception that the teams were being subsidized, well, not even the perception, but the reality that the teams were being subsidized subsidized, and that they were providing some sort of economic benefit to the uh, the political entity that created uh, more and more interest in uh, having or losing a team
0: Now, now, your, your book ends in uh, 1989. Um, but, we, but we continue to see Congress involved in some ways. W- while it's outside of the scope of what you've written, how would you characterize the current treatment of the, the three professional leagues and the interest that Congress has on some of these issues? All these issues haven't been resolved. Um, is there there any current interest at the national level in the way that these leagues are are operated? Well, there appears to be
1: quite a bit. My guess is that uh, the the legislators are not quite as uh, willing to look the other way, or maybe they're not as naive as they were before. During the 1957 hearing, they bring in Casey Stangle and Mickey Mantle and a bunch of other people, and even though it's just written, and I, I don't have any... Visuals to watch. It, it appears that these le- legislators are just uh, happy to trade pleasantries with these players, and they're somewhat starstruck at Mickey Mantle sitting there before them and, and everything. My guess is today they're they're a little more realistic about these entities, and they they realize that they're they're dealing with a lot of uh, self-interested parties here, both the owners, the players, and the fans, in the media. And they're all self-interested, which is fine. Uh, that's what you would expect. And the legislators, of course, are self-interested, too. But I think there's probably a, a little bit more realism of, of what everything entails. And I don't think they're going to be as willing to uh, overlook things as they were in the past. You can see that with Sam Irvin. He's very critical. And Seller would was becoming more and more critical, too, especially after he realized that these owners were um, I don't, lying would probably be too strong a word, but they were somewhat duplicitous. And he had become pretty disenchanted in them. He was always somewhat suspicious of them, but uh, in the wake of the NFL merger, and then they eventually played games with television, and then with the blackouts. I think the legislators were beginning to see that the owners were uh, were playing playing them for for chumps. I guess that would be a, a broad way to put it.
0: The the steroid scandal and the congressional hearings. The most maybe the most recent. Uh, certainly, back you up in terms of the treatment uh, of the, the current array of, of stars compared to those in the 1950s. Uh, Dave's book is The Big Leagues Go to Washington Congress and Sports Antitrust, 1951 to 1989. Dave, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, you're certainly welcome, and thanks for having me on the show. Our pleasure.